What we're going to do this week is pretty second story stuff. This is top shelf. This is, this is the stuff that you're not supposed to get until you're older. Except that God intends you to get it when you're younger. And that's to look into the life of a man who's been where you are. Done what you've done. Tried what you've tried. Experienced what you've experienced and all you want to experience. And looked back at us and said, I want you to learn the lessons that I learned. We're going to look intensely at the life of Solomon. Not a lot of people write on Solomon. Not a lot of people preach on Solomon. And the reason is, if you go through chapter 1 through 11 of 1 Kings, you find his life. And at the end of, at the middle of 1 Kings 11, it ends Solomon's life and he's not walking with the Lord. And I think the reason people don't preach on him is because it ends so abruptly. Unless you attach the book of Ecclesiastes, which we'll look at tomorrow in specific, which looks back on his life after he recovers, after he crashes and burns and rolls himself out. And he writes to you and me. But in looking at his life just very briefly tonight, what I want to do is kind of take you to the buffet. We're going to go over to the smorgasbord and you're going to walk by a lot of food. You're going to see a lot of stuff. Some you like, some you don't like, some that's more attractive to you, some that's less attractive to you. This is a smattering of lessons from Solomon, just looking at who he is. And as you look at these lessons, I want you to look intensely for which ones are for you. It may be that some of these lessons don't have anything to do with you and that's okay. Just let them by or for someone else. But I'm convinced that looking at the background of who Solomon is, God has laid a wonderful spiritual ambush for every one of us. So let's walk by the smorgasbord, walk by the buffet of his life and see what God might have for you in it. VH1 has a series. It's called Behind the Music. You've probably seen that. I don't know why they have the series because it's the exact same every single time. You got this, this garage band or this guy who's singing or this girl who's singing. They get popular. They work hard. They do all the right things to get to the top. Then they're discovered. They sell a million records. Then they get drugs and sex and, and, and uh, um, people wanting their money and give it all. And then they crash and burn. And then they just have a show about them called Behind the Music. It's the same every time. What would it be like if they interviewed this person and said, what was it like to be you? Well, I made a lot of money and gave it to charity and became a Christian and I love life. That would be called no show. For some reason, we like watching people just destroy themselves. I'm not sure why that is, but if you're going to look at King Solomon's life, you're going to find the same kind of guy. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. To understand Solomon, you've got to understand his context. Solomon had a mom and Solomon had a dad just like the rest of us. But his mom and dad weren't any mom and weren't any dad. Solomon's dad was a man named David. King David. The David of the Old Testament. The David who God said, there's no heart I've ever seen devoted to me like my servant David. But we find out something about David's wife, to be at least. Her name was going to be Bathsheba. What happened in that union really is important for two reasons. Number one, David and Bathsheba are going to get together and they're going to have children. One of those children is going to be Solomon. That's going to be his mom and dad and the context in the family he's going to grow up in. Frankly, between you and me, a very dysfunctional family. Problematic family from the very beginning. 
But in order to understand his family context, I want us to go back before Solomon to let you learn something so mammothly, epically impractical. Practical, rather. For what you're going to do this week. That if you miss it, you might just miss God putting his hand in you like a glove to use in someone's life. You know the story well. If you don't, let me, let me just highlight it for you. Uh, David is married already, and so is this girl named Bathsheba. But there's a problem. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1 says, It happened in the spring when time when kings go out to battle. Now, what does that mean? In the spring, kings just go out to battle? Well, it's very important. Kings went out to battle in the spring because they stopped fighting in the fall. You say, why was that? Because it started raining. There's a rainy season. You say, why did they stop fighting? Because they didn't have tanks. They had horses and chariots and no paved roads. And they couldn't move anything. And so it was an understanding. It's kind of a weird thing. You're fighting with some army. And it comes to the rainy season. And you basically say, we'll see you back here in the spring. And everybody stopped and went home. Had a nice winter and came back. Well, it's springtime. And there's some business to finish. King David, the mighty battle warrior who's supposed to lead the army, does something. Stayed home. And he sent Joab and his servants with him, his general, and all of Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. David stayed at Jerusalem. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to do, which opened him up to doing what he wasn't supposed to do. Now when the evening came, David arose from his bed. Walked around the roof of his house. Now stop right there. This wasn't the normal city of Jerusalem that we have today. That was up on what we call the Temple Mount area. This was off the, 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 the level area of where Jerusalem is today. There was a little hill. And it was called the, the uh, Jebus. It was the city of David. And it just ran down the ridge, straight down. The king's house and palace was at the top. And just terraced on down the ridge were different houses. His house was on the top. When he walked out on the roof, he could look over the entire city, the city of David. That's what's meant in, uh, when, when you hear the city of David, just down that ridge. Problem. Houses were built next to houses next to houses. Just you'd, you'd save some money by not having to build that extra wall. You just build three walls on that next house on down the ridge. The only place you could find privacy in that kind of house was on the roof. One Maybe if you're rich, two-room houses. Only place to find uh, privacy, go upstairs on the roof. That's where you took your bath. Now, when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, top of the ridge. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. It's very easy to understand how he would see this. He's looking right down. And from what he notices about this woman, her house was probably pretty close. The woman was beautiful in appearance. Didn't need binoculars to tell that. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, uh, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. They had sex. And when she had purified herself from uncleanliness, she returned to her house. Guess what? Verse 5, the woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. You know the rest of the story. He has to cover it up. So he brings Uriah, her husband, 
from the battlefield back, faithfully fighting where David should have been, and through a lot of shenanigans, tries to get him to go and spend time with his wife so it could look like this baby would be hers. He doesn't do it. He's a man of integrity. So David has him killed, put at the front of the battle and killed. And there's a world of lessons in that. But what I want you to see is why this happened and the impact it could have on your life. There's a word in these first uh, five verses. It appears all throughout this chapter and the next. This word, everyone look up a second. This word might be the most important word you hear all week if you understand its significance. It's the word... Sent. S-E-N-T. And you're saying, what? what? What does that mean? Watch this. Read this with different eyes this time. Just these first few verses. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants along with all Israel. They destroyed the sons of Ammon, besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at home in Jerusalem. When the evening came and David arose from his bed and walked around the roof of the king's house. From the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So, David sent and inquired about the woman. Verse 4, David sent messengers. Verse 5, the woman conceived, and she sent and told David. What's going on here? I've heard the story of David and Bathsheba preached many times. Without this accent, don't miss this. David sent about the woman, got information from her. Meaning, other people knew what was going on. Such that they understood David's intent and said, this woman's married. He still took her. She sent messengers back. Not only that, it says she waited till her time of purification to return home. Read Leviticus chapter 15, chapter 18. That's seven days. Get this. She stays there a week. Everyone knows she's there. She's eating. She's sleeping. What's the point, Rick? Simply this. So many people saw David moving toward this sin. Guess what? They did nothing. They did nothing about it. Let's go to the buffet. I'm going to give you the first lesson of a life of regret. I want you to look at these lessons at the end and see what God has for you. But this is the first lesson. Are you ready? Lesson number one. You are your brother's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. Remember back in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? In other words, do I have any responsibility to know anything about my brother? Let's amplify that. Number one, yes, he did then because he'd done something wrong. But the body of Christ, get this, the body of Christ is given for the hand to scratch the head when it itches. To tie the shoe. To grab the knee when it falls. The body works together. I had a cousin I grew up with. Her name was Terry. Terry actually died when she was 12 years old from complications from cerebral palsy. Terry was just a few years older than her, and she was, she was one of my best friends. She couldn't talk. She had no quadriplegic, uh, couldn't talk. She could only move her eyes to respond. She, uh, she could move, look up for a yes and close her eyes for a no. That's, that's the only way we could talk. 
But she actually received Jesus Christ by looking up. What's frustrating is to watch Terry when she would have fits. She would be out of control, sometimes scratching her face with her fingernails and her body flailing out all over the place. And you could see in her eyes that she wanted to have control and didn't have any. Her body was working against itself. Jesus Christ said, the church is my body. It either works together or it beats itself up. Can you imagine falling and busting your knee wide open and not grabbing it with your hand? Can you imagine watching someone that you say you love? A brother or sister in your youth group walking closely to sin and not saying anything? These people watched David walk headlong into the sin and they did nothing. Nothing at all. And let it happen. You are your brother and your sister's keeper. Sent, sent, sent. And no one said, I won't go. Forget it. Stop. You're moving into dangerous territory, David. Bathsheba, don't go up there. Do you know anyone here? Do you know anyone back home who you can see their life is on a collision course with disaster and sin? And you felt it in your heart that you need to say something and you haven't. You are your brother's keeper. The union of that marriage after they were did away with um, Uriah produced a baby that was under the judgment of God and actually died. While you're there, can I just give you one more little insight? Look at chapter 12. I love this. Here's our word. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan's the one who told him, you've been in sin. Nathan was the faithful one, but not, not soon enough. Do you love your friends? Are you willing to tell them the hard things? He grew up in a very difficult family. It was David's life from this point on was, was disaster. It, Solomon was the obvious uh, heir to the throne, but he was the tenth born, was not obviously the heir to the throne. He was actually the tenth born son of David. Why did he get the throne? Because God told David that Solomon was going to be king. That's the only reason. God said, that tenth son, he's going to be the king. He's my choice. His older brother Adonijah um, attempted to take the throne, but was halted by God and killed by Solomon, probably too hastily. History would show that Solomon would not learn much from his dysfunctional family, though. He would have his own succession problems as well. Let me give you a second lesson from Solomon's life of regret. Number two, maturity happens on purpose. Maturity happens on purpose. Turn over one book to 1 Kings chapter 2. David is about to die. And so he brings little Solomon, probably 12, 13 years old at the time, up to his bedside as he's dying. And chapter 2 verse 1 says, As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, Now, if you're like me, I want to know what David's going to say. David's about to die. Solomon's about to be king. What's he going to say? Get this. I'm going the way of all the earth. I'm about to be buried and eaten by worms. That's what he's saying. 
Solomon, be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. I'm in the New American Standard. I don't know what the, don't know what the ESV says here. Literally, become a man. It's kind of weird. He's not saying, don't become a woman. Make sure you become a man and not a woman. That's not what he's saying. He is saying, become a man and not a boy. You know what he's telling him? Grow up. Get this. Grow up on purpose. We grow up in our culture and our society passively. We just kind of get older and hope that we grew up in the process. That's not what David wanted Solomon to do. He's saying, become a man on purpose. Let's generalize that. Become a man on purpose. Become a woman on purpose. What does that mean? Be ready to be an adult. What does that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 3. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in His ways, to keep His statutes, His commandments, His ordinances, His testimonies according, according, underline it, according to what is written in the law of Moses so that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. Don't you want to succeed in all you do and wherever you turn? Grow up. How do you do that? Get this. Look up. You grow up by obeying the Bible. Very simple. The pathway to maturity is through the word of the living God. Most of us, I know I was, I was this way when I was in high school. We just do it passively. We get up, we live life. We, we hope to get to 16 to drive. We hope to get to 18 when we go to college. We hope to get to 21 so that we can, I hope not, What's it mean to grow up? You know what it means? It means you're making wise decisions according to Scripture. That's what it means to grow up. What are you doing to become a man? Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, act like men. He wasn't saying act like men and not women. He was saying act like men and not boys. Be masculine. Be mature. Same thing goes for women. Titus 2. Show them how to become a great woman. Be a feminine woman of God. All according to the scriptures. What are you doing to grow up? Are you doing anything to pursue becoming a responsible adult? Number three. Looking at this buffet of uh, lessons from a life of regret. Let's get into his life a little bit. Decisions become destiny. Decisions become destiny. Go to 1 Kings chapter 3. I was in Israel last year, and one of my favorite places to go that I went was here in Gibeon. In Gibeon, God came to Solomon in a dream. This is a dream like nothing you and I have ever had. Solomon had become king. He'd grown up. He'd become a man. He was pleasing the Lord, following the Lord's statutes, following his word. Then in verse 5 of chapter 3, In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Hey, Solomon, ask what you wish me to give you. Wouldn't that be cool? God says, Hey, Rich, I don't want to wake anybody else up. Listen. What do you want? Tell me, and I'll give it to you. What would your answer be? I have a list. 
I wouldn't have to think very long. But my first question would be, is this only one request or can you give me more than one? Is this, can I do the wish for more wishes? I mean, what do I do here? What would you guess? What would you want? What does Solomon answer? Solomon said, you have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according to, as he walked before you in truth, righteousness, and uprightness of heart toward you. You've reserved for him a great loving kindness that you've given him a son now to sit on his throne this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant, that's me, King Solomon, king in the place of my father David. And I'm a, I'm a boy, literally. I'm a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. That's our way of saying, I don't have a clue. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you've chosen a great people. Too many to be numbered or counted. He sees the task too big for him. Verse 9. So give your servant an understanding heart, a wise heart, to judge your people and to discern good and evil. For who's able to lead this great people of yours? Verse 10. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon asked this thing. You know what Solomon asked for? Leadership. Leadership by wisdom. Give me the ability, God, the divine ability to lead your people to know good from evil. And so that I can help them decide any matter. What would you ask for? Look what happens. God said to him, verse 11, Because you've asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life or the riches for yourself or asked for the life of your enemies, but you've asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold! I love this word. When you're reading the Old Testament and the word behold shows up, translate that, guess what? It's the same way as us saying, guess what? Guess what, Solomon? I've done according to your words. I made you the wisest man who's ever lived. Guess what? Behold, I've given you a wise and discerning heart so that there's been none like you before you, none after you. I've also, by the way, given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor. And there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. Solomon got everything. Get this. He got the wisest heart that's ever been except for Jesus Christ. That's going to be very important tomorrow morning. But he also had riches and honor. You ready for this? Solomon had so many resources. Get this. He could get anything and everything he wanted. That's how rich he was. He had so much power by virtue of his wisdom. He could do anything he wanted. Have anything he wanted. Do anything he wanted. Have the most wise and insightful heart of anybody in the world. That's pretty special. All because he made a good decision. What's the footnote to that? You're making little decisions every day. God's not going to make you the wisest person in the world, but he can make you wiser. And he may not make you the richest person in the world, but he can tell you how to use your wealth. He can't, he won't give you, make you the most honorable person in the world, but he can honor himself through you. Little decisions in reference to God turn into lifetimes. We often wait for this big thing. That's kind of why we're here at camp, isn't it? This big time, radical time before God. Those are great times. The question is, what decisions are you going to make about God that are going to follow you home? It's all about decisions. Decisions will become your destiny. Little decisions become big decisions. 
What decisions are you making now? Are you in the process of making now? Are you actively pursuing them to the glory of God? Number three. Actually, number... It was number three, wasn't it? No. Thank you. I see that hand. Let's go back to three for a second, though. Because I want to talk to you about something that is super important. You're tired, I know, with long bus rides, but this is the most important thing all week. Ready for this? And you'll hear it again. Decisions become destiny. There's no more important decision than that you decide what you're going to do with the gospel. This week you're going to hear in small groups, you're going to hear in sermon times, you're going to sing it in songs. Jesus and the cross, and he substituted for our sin. He became a curse for us that we could be a blessing to God. What does all that mean? It's very simply this. We have a great need to have our sin taken care of before a holy God. God has an absolute nature that will never let that happen because he hates our sin. The gospel is all about the word mediator. God sent his son, Jesus, to represent God's holiness and righteous standard to us. But he also sent Jesus to represent us and our sin to God. And he stood in between God and us. And on the cross, he was literally between two worlds, heaven and hell. And on the cross, he made a great exchange and offered us his righteousness if we would receive it by faith so that he would take on our sin and be a curse so that God could have justice meted out on us in him. He treated us like we'd lived Jesus' righteous life because he treated him like he'd lived our unrighteous life. That's an amazing thing. I was explaining this to one of my boys not long ago. He had a great response to this. He says, Dad, that's not fair. It's not. God's not fair. God, praise God, praise Him forever. He's not fair. Because if God was fair, we would all be in hell. He's not fair, but He's just. He does what's right. He crucified His own Son for us who would believe. The most important decision you make is what you do with that truth. Now, number four. You had to know it was coming sometime this week. We'll get it again tomorrow. Romantic attraction. Romantic attraction affects spiritual direction. Massive lesson from Solomon's life. Romantic attraction affects spiritual direction. 1 Kings chapter 11. Everything's going great. Chapter 3, he does the great uh, trial where two harlots came in. Remember that? Uh, They were sleeping in the same house. And they were sleeping with babies that they had. And one of them rolls over and smothers the baby. It's a dead child. She wakes up in the morning. She exchanges her child with the living child of uh, her friend who's sleeping next to her. Obviously, the two women wake up. The one with the dead child looks and says, This isn't my baby. Oh, yes, it is. They took it to Solomon and said, what are you going to do? This is my child. No, this is my child. Solomon said, tell you what, bring me a sword. 
They bring him a sword. He says, cut the living baby in half and give one half to each person, to each woman. The, the one who had switched the babies in the night says, absolutely. We both, we both should lose the child. The real mom said, no, 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 no. No, let her have it. Better that the child should live. Solomon said, there's the mother. People heard of his wisdom. Things are going great. He builds a temple that David didn't get to build. He prays to dedicate the temple. Everything's going great. Through He gets warned by God in chapter 9. Things are going great in chapter 10. Then the end of Solomon's life comes in chapter 11. Get this. Before you read chapter 11 of First Kings, let me just read you a verse. You don't need to turn there. Very important in Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is really critical. Solomon was going to become king the second excuse me, the third king of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 17, God gives instruction about what the children of Israel were to do when they get a king. Listen to this. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, this is Deuteronomy 17, 14, if, uh, I will say to you, you will, set a, you will say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses from among your countrymen. Not a foreigner. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Don't get your military might from other places. Depend on me. Then he says this, get this. This king shall never multiply wives for himself. Or else his heart will turn away. Wow. Wow. 1 Kings 11. Now King Solomon loved. Now King Solomon loved. Not one, many foreign women. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh. He also loved the Moabite, the Ammonite, the Edomite, the Sidonian, the Hittite women. From the nations specifically concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. Why? They will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Look at the end of verse 2. Solomon held fast to these women because of what? Because of love. How many? Get your seatbelt on. Verse 3. He had 700 wives and princesses and 300 concubines and his wives turned his heart away for when solomon was old his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly devoted to the lord just as david his father had been for solomon followed after ashroth the goddess of sidonians and Machon, the the destitute idol of the ammonites Go down to verse uh, 6. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Go down to verse 8. Burned incense, sacrifices to their gods. Look at verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon. Why? You know why? All right, look up. Because of who he chose to love. The time for this lesson is not in four years when you're in college or leaving college. The time for this lesson from Solomon's life is right now. Because you're determining what you're going to do with your romantic attractions. 
Romantic attraction affects spiritual direction. Listen, the most influential person on your spiritual life will be the person you marry. Now, I believe in male leadership in the church and male leadership at home, and I'm a pastor in our church, I'm an elder in our church, and I I think I lead my home, and all that's great. Big deal. You know who leads my life more than any human on this planet? My wife. By her example, her encouragement, her godliness, her godly pursuits. Gals, do you want... To raise children who will love Christ like that boy you have the crush on? Guys, are you looking beyond the physical to say this woman will be the greatest influence on my spiritual existence if it goes north? We'll talk more about this in the morning. Very tempted to break into a dating series right now, but it's late. Won't do that. Just know this. What my mom told me is absolutely true. I'm about 15 years old and starting to really have an interest in girls. And my mom, she's with the Lord now. Just a wonderful Tennessee hick of a mom. I never, she said it a thousand times. Ricky, you remember, every date is a potential mate. Right, And then I thought about that. That's actually true. You end up actually going out with someone you eventually marry. So if you backtrack, I hear people say it all the time. All sorts of high school students say, oh, we're dating, but I'd never marry him. Oh, but you date him? Well, yeah. Well, I, I would never want to have children with him. Oh, but you'd swap slobber with him. Don't act like that's some silly thing. You're either that person or you know that person. Who you're spending time with is who you're going to eventually marry. Solomon found out the hard way. That will have a radical effect on your life. Very shortly, number five. Experience is the best teacher. Experience is the best teacher. Colon. Especially if it's someone else's. Experience is the best teacher, especially if it's someone else's. Now, this is just a one-minute introduction to the rest of the week. We're going to be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book Solomon wrote after he fell from the Lord, and he finds the Lord again and gets his life right before he dies. And he preaches a sermon to young people called the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll look at it the rest of the week, but remember this. You can let Solomon's experience teach you the lessons and learn from his pain, or you can have them yourself and have your own pain as well. It's almost like Solomon is, sees this amazing shore on the other side of this ice that looks very thin. And he thinks, he really thinks, if I run fast enough across this ice, this pond, if I can go fast enough, With my excellent speed and agility, I can make it across. He didn't make it across. He tries all these pleasures. He gets right out of the middle and God lets him sink through the thin ice of his patience. The book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon standing on the other side, watching us about to run not just 
not just through the ice that looks thin, the ice that's cracked because he fell through. And we're about to try to run right across it. And he's saying, don't run across. Like We're like, right, Solomon, I can make it. Ecclesiastes is Solomon screaming from the other side. Don't be stupid. And all of us are like, yeah, right. And we just take off right across that lake, fall on the same ice, same quagmires that he did. We'll look at that the rest of the week. Last lesson, number six. It's never too late to run to God. It's never too late to run to God. Solomon lived a great life before the Lord, crashed, burned, fell on the ice, God gave him another chance. No matter what's happened in your life, God is never nearer than he is tonight. You know, we kind of think this. If we take, if we take 30 steps away from God, it's going to take 30 steps to get back to him. That's not the way God works. You take 150 steps away from God, get this. It's only one back. Only one step back. And that step is expressing faith in his son. You don't have to fix your life to come to God. God's deal, God deals in broken and contrite lives. You're going to have time in a few minutes to kind of wrap the day up in some small groups. I want to ask you to do something. Take these six lessons and look at them honestly and say, which one of those lessons from Solomon's life did God, get this, did God put on my plate as I walked by that buffet? Which one of those is for you? I can tell you, even reading them over again, there are several in there for me. Where is God picking at the scab of your calloused heart and saying, we're going to open that up and heal it? He's putting lessons on your plate to learn from Solomon. You want to learn from his or you want to learn with your own pain? Can I ask you to bow with me in a moment of prayer? just a simple look at Solomon's very complicated and tragic life that actually ended pretty well. You're going to find out how it ends this week, and I think you're going to be amazed and encouraged. Which of those lessons did God put on your plate that you know he is screaming at you to apply to your life? Take a moment and make sure that you understand those. I trust in a few minutes when you have that small group time, you can discuss those things. Don't think you can run from God and don't think you can't run to God. Father, it's been a long day of travel and we're really weary, really tired. But your spirit can enliven our mind just for a few moments to re-engage, to see what you have for us in looking at Solomon's life. Lord, make us good deciders, good choosers, aware of your presence. Use this week to teach us how to live and how to know we're alive. Give us good rest tonight and alert minds tomorrow morning as we look deeper into Solomon's life. In Jesus' name, amen.